Welcome to A Good Night for a Murder, a Victorian true crime podcast. My name is Kim, and I do not have a clever intro or lead-in for tonight's story, because we are covering Jack the Ripper. There is no introduction needed, and we have a lot to talk about. Jack the Ripper is arguably the most notorious serial killer of all time. But for as famous as this case is, there are still a few things that surprise me about it. So we're going to get right into it. This is the story of Jack the Ripper. But first, a Victorian society tip. As many of us try to make the most of our final days of summer vacation, I have two pieces of advice for you from an 1888 article titled Behavior at Summer Resorts and Watering Places. 1. Make sure to never be alone, especially if you're young and pretty. No young lady should ever stay at a hotel alone or without the protection of a married or elderly lady. A young lady, thus circumstanced, should be very careful not to take tete-a-tete evening walks on the beach, for instance, or sit sequestered in the corners of the piazza late in the evening, or remain downstairs after her chaperone has retired for the night. She must especially avoid all these imprudences if she be pretty and attractive. 2. Be polite to those you meet, but don't expect to be friends after. You may be an embarrassment to them. One must be very careful not to endeavor to prolong a summer acquaintanceship after one's return to the city. Thus, we will suppose that two ladies who move in quite different social circles in New York meet at a small summer hotel at the seaside. Mrs. Knickerbocker, being a woman of true politeness and kind heart, has endeavored to make herself an agreeable inmate of her temporary sojourning place, has talked with Mrs. Parvenu when they met in the hotel parlors. Mrs. Parvenu misunderstands this courtesy of her better-bred acquaintance and imagines she has the right to call at Mrs. Knickerbocker's house when they return to New York. In the summer of 1888 in the East End of London, Marianne Nichols has been splitting her time between two common lodging houses in the Spitalfields and Whitechapel districts. She'd been splitting a bed with an elderly woman named Emily Holland while at Spitalfields and had recently moved onto a different house in Whitechapel, though one was not necessarily better than the other. Beds, if they could even be called that, in common lodging houses cost four pence a night, which is only about $1.68 in today money, and the accommodations were cramped, loud, and dirty. Lodgers slept in a shared common space, and crime, alcohol abuse, disease, and mental health concerns were a constant problem. And unfortunately, a lot of the residents of the East End of London had these problems. Britain hadn't been experiencing a steady influx of Irish immigrants since the mid-19th century, and even more recently, Jewish refugees were crowding into the area. The entire area of Whitechapel only works out to be a little less than the area of one square mile. And in 1888, the population was nearly 80,000 people. 15,000 of those were classified as homeless. And on the particular night in August 30th of 1888, Marianne found herself unable to even come up with the four pence required to secure a night's stay at the house in Whitechapel. It's a little after two in the morning when the deputy lodging housekeeper comes to collect her four pence for the night, but as we discussed, she doesn't have it, and he tells her she has to leave. She had somehow gotten a new black velvet hat she was wearing that night, and she said something sassy to the keeper like, well, I'll have it soon, just look at me and my fancy new hat. 
likely meaning that she was going to go out, find someone to pay her for sex, and she would be back with the four pence soon to pay for her night's stay. At about 2.30 in the morning, Marianne's friend Emily saw her leaning slumped against a storefront, apparently very drunk, and tried to convince her to come back to the lodging house she was staying at, but Marianne responded with something to the effect of, what's the use? I've made and spent my lodging money three times over already today, and she won't go with her. Emily has no choice but to move along without Marianne. Whatever Marianne does next, it's the last thing she'll ever do. Whether she saw her attacker coming or not, we'll never know, but she stood facing her attacker who strangled her before brutally slitting her throat all the way down to her spine and lowering her to the ground. We know Marianne was likely already gone at this point due to the lack of blood at the scene, and it's a good thing too because what her attacker did next was beyond barbaric. She suffered multiple violent slashes to her abdomen so deep her organs were protruding, and she had been stabbed twice in her vagina. Autopsy doctors estimated this was carried out in less than five minutes' time. And then, it's if her attacker dissolved into thin air. She is found at 3.40 a.m., lying on her back in front of a gated stable entrance, murdered. She's found by two passersby on their way to work who were like, whoa, she's either really drunk or dead. We should tell someone. And they continue on their way to work. But luckily, they encounter a policeman and point him in the direction of the body. Based upon her estimated time of death and the timelines from multiple police patrolling the area, residents, and the men who found her, they suspect she must have been murdered mere minutes before she was found. There was no blood trail, murder weapon, or a shred of evidence to be had. Right away, this murder makes headlines due to the vicious nature of the attack. But unfortunately, attacks and murders of women engaging in sex work in the Whitechapel area were not uncommon. Only a month prior, a woman named Martha Tabram was found dead, having been stabbed 39 times. Like Marianne Nichols, she was living night by night in a lodging house, turning to sex work to earn her way. A nearby resident was awoken the night before she was found by someone screaming murder somewhere outside, but this was such a common occurrence that she ignored it. Just four months prior to that, Emma Elizabeth Smith, another woman residing in lodging houses in Whitechapel, was viciously sexually assaulted in the street in the wee hours of the morning by a group of two or three men. She initially survived the attack, but then fell into a coma and had died by the next morning. Police did investigate these cases, but domestic violence was so common and such attacks were really considered par for the course for so-called ladies of the night. So as you can imagine, the police did not bring their A-game to these investigations. Now, even though there were at least two murders in close succession prior to the murder of Marianne Nichols, the murder of Marianne is what kicks off what is now referred to as the canonical five murders. So far, the three murders I've mentioned had pretty different MOs. It's argued sometimes that the attacks on Martha and Marianne are similar enough that they could have been carried out by the same person, but a more distinct pattern is about to reemerge, which leads investigators to begin the canonical five streak with Marianne. So, no one is apprehended for the murder of Marianne. A week later, a woman named Annie Chapman, like Marianne, had also been having a rough go of things. Annie had become pretty depressed after separating from her husband and had been floating around staying at common lodging houses. In spring through summer of 1888, though, she had become a regular at the Crossingham Lodging House. One night, she got into a fist fight with another regular resident that left her pretty beaten up and bruised. 
At some point that week, she had been admitted to what they call the casual ward of the Whitechapel Infirmary, and despite being discharged on September 7th, she was in a bad way. It would later be noted that her lungs and brain membranes were in an advanced state of disease, which I think we could take to mean she had prior health problems unrelated to the fight she got in. All this to say, she's feeling weak and unwell that night of September 7th. So it is now after midnight on September 8th, and she's hanging around the lodging house, but she doesn't have the full amount for her bed for that night. Just like Marianne did, she tells him, save the bed for me, I won't be gone long, and she leaves to likely earn the money for her bed that night with sex work. Sometime between about 4.30 and 5.45-ish in the morning, Annie found herself in the backyard of what I believe is a tenement building at 29 Hanbury Street. She had likely entered the yard willingly, but things quickly took a dark turn as the man she entered with strangled and suffocated her by holding a handkerchief over her face. He then slashed her throat all the way back to her vertebral column. She had been disemboweled with her skin and intestines being placed up above her shoulders, and part of her uterus and bladder were missing. Her body was discovered just before 6 a.m. by an elderly resident of the building. Two important points on the murder of Annie Chapman. There was one witness who saw Annie talking with a man just outside the yard where she was found murdered at about 5.30 a.m. This witness claimed to positively have seen Annie talking with a man described to have a shabby, genteel appearance, and she overheard the man asking Annie, will you, to which Annie replied, yes. That's all we've got, but it's widely believed this is the only true sighting of the real Jack the Ripper. The second point is that the murder of Annie Chapman confirmed for many officials that the murderer had some sort of anatomical knowledge, and they must be someone skilled in knife work of some sort perhaps a butcher or even a doctor or a surgeon. This opened up the doors for Jack the Ripper to be anybody. It could be someone there among them in Whitechapel, or it could be an outsider, possibly even someone from elite society, coming in to prey on the residents of Whitechapel. So Annie's murder is immediately linked and thought to be carried out by the same person who killed Marianne only a week before. In addition, though, the press have taken the prior two murders of Martha Tabram and Emma Elizabeth Smith, even though the Emmas were different, and run with them, publishing theories that this is now the fourth in a series of murders in Whitechapel. And for as many people who feel afraid and concerned, there are unfortunately some who think this is an opportunity to have some sick fun, and the newspapers start getting anonymous letters from people claiming to be responsible for the murders. And this is how the name Jack the Ripper is coined. On September 27, a letter was received by the Central News Agency of London. The letter was dated September 25 and is referred to in Ripperology as the Dear Boss Letter, as that's how the greeting starts out. It's essentially mocking the police, threatens that he's not done yet, and it's signed, Jack the Ripper. It was later determined that this letter was only an elaborate hoax. In fact, later in the 1930s, a journalist admitted to penning the letter themselves, as well as a second postcard the following month referred to as the Saucy Jack postcard, clearly penned by the same hand. So while they were ultimately a dead end, they're worth mentioning here as the police did spend a lot of time scouring them both for clues, and they did give us the famous name. A few weeks later, the night of September 29 is about to be a very bad night in Whitechapel. Elizabeth Stride is planning to spend the night in her regular lodging house in Whitechapel. She worked as a cleaning lady in the same lodging house and for other residents nearby, and often stayed at the house when her and her partner were on the outs. 
She had been married but separated from her husband. Then, after he died sometime in 1885, she started living with a local dock laborer, but the relationship is tumultuous and she would often move into the lodging house when things got rough. The same evening, Catherine Eddowes and her partner had recently arrived back in London from working as annual hop pickers. Hops, that are used to brew beer, were grown in the countryside in Kent, and it was common when the harvest season came that a lot of working-class people would leave the cities to earn money by participating in the annual hop harvest. So Catherine had only returned to Whitechapel a few days before, and she and her partner were kind of surfing around to different lodging houses, infirmaries, wherever they could both find room and board for the night. So the stories of these two women are about to converge on the night of September 29 and early morning hours of September 30th. At about 6.30 p.m., Elizabeth visits a pub with a friend and returns to her regular lodging house. Around the same time, we can deduce that Catherine was somewhere in town drinking because by 8.30 p.m., she's found drunk and unable to stand on the sidewalk. And police come and take her to the drunk tank. So while Catherine is locked up, sobering up, multiple witnesses place Elizabeth in the company of at least two to three different male acquaintances or clients between the hours of about 11 p.m. and 12.45 a.m. Also that night, a meeting of the International Working Men's Educational Club, a socialist or predominantly Jewish social club, was letting out between 12.30 and 12.50 a.m. at 40 Burner Street. The witness testimony of a police officer at about 12.45 a.m. places Elizabeth in the yard of the adjacent property with a man. At no time in the evening did she appear to be in distress to anyone. Around 1 a.m., Louis Diemschutz, the steward of the club, had just pulled into the yard of the club with a two-wheel cart when his horse abruptly shied to the left. The yard is poorly lit, and Diemschutz gets down to check what's in the way of his horse when he discovers the body of Elizabeth Stride still oozing blood from a wound on her neck. Much of her body is still warm to the touch. It could not have been more than a matter of 10 to 15 minutes where no one else except Elizabeth and whoever attacked her were in that yard. Between the officer spotting Elizabeth the club letting out, and Diemschutz pulling in, Elizabeth was attacked and killed in that 10 to 15 minute span. So the yard is so dark, Diemschutz runs inside to check that his own wife is okay and it's not actually her lying in the yard. And when he finds her safe, he alerts the other members of the club and they run and fetch the police. Meanwhile, Catherine Eddowes is now sober enough to be released from police custody and she walks out of the police station around 1 a.m., the same time Elizabeth is being discovered murdered. At about 1.30 a.m., a policeman is patrolling an area called Mitre Square. At the 1.30 a.m. pass, all looks well. 14 minutes later, his beat takes him past the square again, where this time he happens upon the disemboweled body of Catherine Eddowes. Her throat was deeply cut. She had a long jacket cut down her abdomen, through which she had been disemboweled, the killer having removed her intestines and placed them out of his way over her right shoulder. Her kidney and uterus had been removed and her face had also been extensively and brutally disfigured. It is the general consensus that when Diemschutz pulled into the yard with his horse and cart, he interrupted a murder in progress. So the murderer fled, but not having finished what he set out to do, he immediately attacked Catherine only a few blocks away. So I mentioned that violence against women was a problem in Whitechapel, and police didn't usually bring their A-game when investigating such cases, but this string of murders had the police's attention. Having occurred in Whitechapel, the case was initially handled by the Metropolitan Whitechapel Division Criminal Investigation Department. 
Pretty quickly, officials from the central office of Scotland Yard were called in to assist. Catherine Edo's murder occurred within the limits of the city of London, so then the city of London police got involved. And for their lives, they could not gain a footing in this case. They interviewed over 2,000 people, 300 were investigated, and 80 overall were detained. A reward was offered for information, nothing came of it. To explore the theory that the perpetrator had anatomical knowledge, like that of a butcher, they talked to over 75 butchers. They noticed all of the murders occurred on a weekend or a holiday, so they investigated cattle boats that commonly docked Thursday to Friday and departed Saturday to Sunday but not a single boat's movements match up their timeline. And in every case, these murders happen within a matter of minutes with people nearby, and no one ever saw or heard a thing that amounted to anything helpful. There was no useful evidence found at any of the scenes, no murder weapon, not a blood trail, not a footprint, nothing. Jack the Ripper was truly the boogeyman. Frustrated with the police's lack of progress, a group of concerned citizens formed the Whitechapel Vigilance Committee. This was a volunteer group that patrolled the neighborhoods, petitioned the government to raise the reward fund, put forth a small reward fund of their own, and hired private detectives to investigate the case. On October 16, 1888, two weeks after the night of the double murder, the chairman of the committee, George Lusk, receives a letter. The return address on the letter simply says, from hell, and wrapped up with the letter is half of a preserved human kidney. The grammar and spelling are pretty poor, but the letter essentially says, I sent you half the kidney I took from the one woman, preserved it for you. The other piece I fried and ate. It was very nice. I may send you the bloody knife that took it out if only you wait a while longer. Signed, catch me when you can, Mr. Lusk. So this letter, unlike the other two, is thought to be genuine. First, it came with a kidney, which Catherine Eddowes did have a kidney removed when she was murdered, Though they didn't have the technology to confirm much beyond that, so it is a bit of a loose end. Also, the handwriting and level of literacy are markedly different than the other two letters we talked about. It makes no mention of police involvement like the others, perhaps indicating this is a personal attack directed at Lusk himself or the Whitechapel community in general. Some of the misspellings lead them to believe the writer was Irish, and the messy handwriting and multiple ink blots support that the writer was not well-educated. While some believe this could all be faked, for most part, the From Hell letter is thought to be the real deal. Also in October 1888, we see the police put forth what is known as one of the earliest instances of offender profiling. Police surgeon Thomas Bond is asked to give his opinion on the skill, knowledge, and overall type of person the killer may be, and what he surmises is that all of the murders, starting with Marianne Nichols, were done by the same person, all were killed by laying down, by their throats being slashed from left to right, He did not think the killer had any special anatomical, surgical, or carving skill. He was likely a man of solitary habits, subject to, quote, periodical attacks of hymosodal and erotic mania, with the nature of the mutilations indicating hypersexuality. Though no evidence of sexual assault had been found, the way the victims were left indicates the perpetrator may have received some sort of sexual satisfaction through leaving them so exposed. So despite all this questioning, the police collaboration, the volunteer committee, rewards, private detectives, the profiling, it happens again. On November 8, Mary Jane Kelly has been out having drinks with a few different friends and acquaintances that evening when she heads back to her apartment with a man. 
Witness descriptions of the man vary, so it could have been different people, could have been the same, and the witnesses just have poor memories. But either way, she's seen entering her single-room apartment with company sometime between 1 and 2 a.m. Mary Jane had been living there with her partner, Joseph Barrett, but he disapproved of her practice of sex work to support herself and her drinking habit and had recently moved out. So the last time anyone sees Mary Jane is the early morning hours of November 9. It is almost 11 a.m. now when the landlord sends his assistant to go collect rent for Mary Jane, seeing as she's about six weeks behind on her payments. He knocks, but no one answers. He tries the door, but it's locked. Eventually, he goes around to the window, which has one of the panes of glass busted out and a balled-up piece of cloth stuffed in it to plug the hole. And when he removes this and looks inside, he is horrified to see the most brutal Jack the Ripper murder yet. The police are alerted, and essentially, chaos breaks out. The police try to lock down the scene, even requesting to bring in bloodhounds to try and track the killer, and crowds start gathering at either end of the street that grow to reach over 1,000 angry residents. The mutilation of Mary Jane's body was extensive, and unlike the others where the work seems to have been performed in no more than five minutes' time, this investigator's reason he likely spent nearly two hours mutilating the body. Again, they conclude the cause of death was a slash across the throat. Mary Jane was found lying naked on the bed, completely disemboweled. Her organs had been removed and kind of scattered around her body, except for her heart. That was gone. Her breasts had been cut off, her arms were cut up, and her face was hacked beyond recognition, and the flesh of her legs had been mutilated as well. A bunch of her clothes had been burned in the fireplace, likely to provide light in the room for the killer to work by, and her time of death was estimated to be between 1.45 and 7.45 that morning. Though this murder took place indoors, unlike the others, it is immediately linked to the four before it, but this will end the killing streak that most experts attribute to Jack the Ripper. Are you ready to talk about suspects? Me too. So, in short, there are no very good suspects. To even whittle it down to a short list of three to five that most could agree on is super difficult. Casebook.org, which is one of the most extensive compilations of Ripper research available, lists more than 30 suspects, though as many as 500 different suspects have been put forth at some time or another. What's more, nearly all the evidence and documentation we have from the time period was lost during World War II. There were a few quote-unquote breakthroughs using modern science to analyze old DNA evidence as recent as 2014, I believe. But for as many people who hang their hats on this, there are just as many who use the same science to discredit those findings. But if we have to talk suspects, I can go ahead and put forth at least four for your consideration. The first we'll talk about is Charles Allen Lechmere, who also goes by Charles Cross. Lechmere was actually the one to discover Marianne Nichols' body, the first victim. He was on his way to work when he happened upon her in the street and he called over another passerby to take a look. But is that how it really went? Some speculate that Lechmere was actually in the act of killing Marianne himself before being interrupted by the second passerby, so he just played it off as if he had just discovered her there. This is supported by the fact that Marianne Nichols wasn't as extensively mutilated as the other victims. Also, he worked as a meat cart driver, so if he had blood in his clothes, no big deal. His work schedule fits with the murders, and he and his family lived in the area, placing him nearby when the other murders occurred. What's more, he was the one to find her, and he didn't even come forward until the other passerby mentioned his name to the press, and the press started talking about him. 
Then, when he did present himself to police, he lied to them about his name. He gave them the name of Charles Cross. Why you lying, Charlie? Finally, we know that his background is similar to a lot of serial killers and that he grew up in a single-parent home without his biological father and had at least two different stepfathers growing up in very unstable environment with multiple homes. Though the police did talk to him, Charles Lechmere is put forth as more of a contemporary suspect, having only been seriously looked into in present-day research. I have to say, it's a compelling case against Charles Lechmere. One of the better ones, I'd say. But we also have Montague John Druitt. The best evidence they have against Druitt is that he was discovered drowned in the Thames River, having likely committed suicide shortly after the murder of Mary Jane Kelly, the final victim. After which, the Ripper murder seemed to stop. And if there's one thing we know about serial killers, they don't just stop. They're usually incarcerated for something else, or they move to a new area, or they die. Druitt lived close to the Whitechapel area, but not so close that he could have run home after committing the murders. But he was also known to have been in the area around the time of the murders as well. He had a history of mental illness in his family, and in the past three years had lost his father and his mother had been committed to an asylum. Physically, he is not a perfect fit for the best eyewitness testimonies we have of the Ripper. Those describe the Ripper as having a stocky build and Drew it was lean, though he did have a mustache, which fits. If we're looking at why the murder stopped to find our suspects, we should talk about Joseph Barnett. Joseph Barnett was Mary Jane Kelly's partner who had recently left her. This theory wasn't put forward until the 1970s, and it goes that Barnett was so enraged and upset that Mary Jane wouldn't quit sex work for him, he started taking out his frustration on others who practiced sex work, also hoping this would scare her into quitting herself. When it didn't work, he killed her too, in kind of a scorned, jealous, controlling lover trope. Now, Mary Jane was the last murder attributed to the Ripper, so maybe the murder stopped because she was the target all along. Kind of like contemporary serial killer Ed Kemper murdered six women before killing his own mother, then turning himself in. All the prior women were just stand-ins for the source of their actual frustration. His physical description and background matched with the police profiling, but at the time, investigators did interrogate him at length and they did clear him. He seemed genuinely upset at Mary Jane's death and blamed himself for not being there for her. The next is a character named Francis Tumblety. Tumblety is what is referred to as a quack doctor who split his time between mostly New York and the U.S. and London, though he traveled around quite a bit whenever he landed in hot water with the law. He called himself a doctor, though he had no medical training, and he claimed to be able to cure anything with exotic herbal medicines and remedies. He was a snake oil salesman, essentially. Prior to his 1888 arrival in Whitechapel, he was arrested in the U.S. for impersonating a military officer, investigated but ultimately not charged for poisoning two of his clients with his treatments, and then he was even arrested in connection with an assassination attempt on President Lincoln, though that turned out to be a case of mistaken identity as he was only going by an alias similar to someone else they were looking for at the time. He also had a reputation for being misogynist, and I'm not sure if this is true or if it's just a rumor, but he used to throw dinner parties where he invited only men, and if asked about it, he would openly express his disdain for women in general, and at one, he even showed his guest his collection of specimens of organs in jars, specifically their uteruses. I mean, that part fits too good to be true, so let's take that for what it's worth. He was also known to be homosexual, which investigators used as a mark in the innocent column for him, but today we know that's kind of neither here nor there. 
Maybe he was mad he was homosexual. Maybe he blamed women and took out his anger by murdering them. Maybe he thought he needed their organs to make some sort of cure. Maybe he did really just collect organs like a psychopath. Anyway, in late November 1888, he was hauled in and charged for suspicion of the Whitechapel murders. But he makes bail, flees to France under an alias, and flees back to New York City, where he's never heard of again. There are no more Ripper murders after this time. The last we'll talk about is Aaron Kosminski. The reason Kosminski often appears high up on the list of Ripper suspects is because his name was floated around by more than a few high-ranking police officials. However, it seems he only made it onto their list because there was one witness who identified a man with the last name of Kosminski as the Ripper. And that man had been admitted to a lunatic asylum, he said. No first name was given, so they scoured all of the nearby insane asylum records for a man with the name of Kosminski, and they found one. Only one, and his name was Aaron Kosminski. But it seems like that's as far as it goes. By and large, he was considered harmless. He was not violent. He was more of the paranoid, auditory hallucination kind of insane versus the homicidal maniac insane. But when they asked the witness who named him for more information, he refused to give it on the accounts that he and Kosminski were both Polish Jews and he would not testify against him in solidarity. Remember at that time, a lot of Jewish refugees were crowding into the area and were facing a lot of discrimination. So this witness didn't want to give up one of his own, I suppose. So because he wouldn't testify, they couldn't really build a case. Later on in 2014, someone who claimed to have a piece of shawl that was found near the site of Catherine Edwards' murder had some blood stains on the shawl analyzed. And there were all these stories that came out in the news stating definitively that yes, it was Aaron Kosminski's DNA and he was the ripper. But it turns out that the scientist actually just identified a DNA marker that could be used to include Kosminski in a suspect pool, not definitively rule anyone out or identify a suspect specifically. A lot of people think this proves it was Kosminski, but if all you're doing is saying that Kosminski, the shawl, and a whole bunch of other people share some common DNA marker, I don't know, maybe I'm misunderstanding, I'm not a geneticist, but I don't think that proves anything. So those are just four suspects. Like I mentioned, there are many others. Ultimately, Jack the Ripper became a symbol of what happens when society turns their back on their problems. He became almost like a mythical phantom figure used as a cautionary tale to warn against bad behavior. And while he is all of these things, he was also definitely real. No one really knows how many murders can be attributed to Jack the Ripper, but most agree there are definitely at least four, maybe five or six, possibly up to 10 or maybe even 12. Who is Jack the Ripper is lost to time, my friends. I would love to hear what you guys think about Jack the Ripper, though. How many victims did he really have? Do you think any of the suspects' names are in fact the Ripper? If you head over to Instagram or TikTok at a goodnight for a murder, you can let me know there, plus see some photos of the victims and the suspects I named here. You can also see the photos and source links on the episode blog on my website at a goodnightforamurder.com. I've put some links to some good YouTube documentaries in there as well. While you're on the website, you can sign up for the Goodnight for a Murder newsletter. Each month, I send an episode roundup, reveal of next month episodes, and other goodies like book recommendations, extra Victorian society tips, and more. The bonus content for Housekeeper and Butler to your Patreons for this episode is a further look at others who may or may not have been victims of Jack the Ripper. To subscribe to Patreon and learn more about the podcast, you can visit agoodnightforamurder.com. Also, follow me on Instagram or TikTok at agoodnightforamurder. Please rate and review and share with your friends. Thank you for listening, and I will talk to you again soon. Bye.